Steve Blank is not a prophet. To get a bit more grounded, he's not a business prophet. Trust me, we may be socially distanced right now, but I've met the man before, happy to report, just another person. But Steve's groundbreaking work on the lean startup methodology has influenced the founding of countless startups in all types of industries. Turned out, it's a playbook to end all playbooks. So when Steve does start talking about the future of how we work, which he doesn't do very often, everybody starts to listen. And today, he's doing just that. We talk about everything from why the current pandemic is a mass extinction event for many companies and entire industries, to how this grand experiment of remote work will forever change the way we do business. Oh yeah, and he lays out exactly what you need to do to not only survive as a company right now, but to thrive in the years coming out of this crisis. I know, I know. Let's get into it, right? I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. Well, Steve, thanks so much for coming back on. It was, uh, it's a treat. I think you're probably the first person that we've gotten to interview twice, so... Next time, you'll just have to become a formal co-host of the show, if that's okay with well, you. Well, I hope it's because you, you, it wasn't because you didn't understand me the first time. <laughs> <laughs> You've just become more and more relevant with everything that's going on right now. And so for those who aren't familiar with Lean Startup and the Lean Startup movement, I was hoping you could start off by briefly describing what that's all about. Sure. You know, the Lean Startup um, is pretty simple. You could describe it in 30 seconds. It just says hey, maybe before we build stuff and spend a lot of money, maybe we ought to make sure it's what people want or need. Um, its background actually took two decades to get to that simple phrase. Uh, I was a serial entrepreneur. I did eight startups in 21 years, um, supercomputers, enterprise software, two semiconductor companies. Yeah. When we built startups, um, we essentially, without ever saying this, and without our investors ever explicitly saying this, we treated startups like they were smaller versions of large companies. And it turned out right, that, of yeah. course, most startups failed. And so when I finally retired, I had time to think about the reasons for the failure and the reasons for the ones that succeeded. And it turns out that startups that succeeded tended to actually get out of the building and not just believe and smoke their own fumes, but actually get out of the building and get customer input as early as possible. And this became yeah. a formal process called customer development. And customer development was a formal methodology of how to get out of the building. But there were still other pieces to a business past just the product. You know, how do you do pricing? What's the right channel? What resources do you need? How, how are your costs going to come up? But there was no f formal way to kind of like list all those pieces other than writing a 400-page business plan. Right. And so finally, the Lean Startup became Osterwalter's Canvas on a single piece of paper said, hey, look, these are the nine things you should be worrying about, including product market fit. And Reese's observation about agile engineering, which helped you build minimum viable products, and my customer development methodology. Yeah. You know, business perspectives are often shaped by the circumstances that they're in in the moment, by the by the context around them. I wonder, today we are in a very different business environment than we were, you know, not even five years ago, but a year ago. And so how has the environment today, and in particular the crisis that 
many businesses are going through right now after the fallout of COVID. How has that changed your thinking on the model? Well, I think the model is more than ever applicable. I think existing businesses, uh, you know, most have, have recognized that they're, you know, some customers have disappeared or buying habits have changed and wondering yeah. whether they're going to return or not. Uh, you know, some segment and some businesses have found their businesses exploding and there are new opportunities. And then new startups are seeing new niches that never existed before. I mean, this is a mass extinction event for not only individual businesses, but perhaps entire industries. And, and there will be new uh, opportunities in the midst of crisis. Uh, the lean model is actually perfectly suited to doing that because you could rapidly uh, test new hypotheses in, in all those cases. Let me push on that a little bit. So how do you actually plan for change when the full effects of that change aren't yet known, when everything is still happening and um, evolving day by day? Well, if you think about what entrepreneurs do, that is founders of companies, that, you know, how do you plan for a future that doesn't exist yet, right? That is <laughs> that is what you, what you tend to do is, you know, you have a set of hypotheses about either you know, how you might want to change an existing market or, or create a niche or, yeah. or even create something that never existed before. And again, we could discuss how, but, but I think the implicit question you're asking is, you, you know, if you're running an existing business and you weren't the founder, this is a hard time for you. You know, for right. founders who are used to operating with sparse data sets and, and seeing through the fog of battle, and, you know, a good percentage of the time, they're actually hallucinating. But sometimes they really do see things that other people don't. They have a different mindset and skill set than people who are operators of existing businesses. Yeah. Not that one's better than, than the other, but ones are definitely di suited to different environments. The tough thing about this pandemic is that we're now forcing operators, people who are great at day-to-day -day execution, to become innovators. And that's yeah. incredibly difficult. Not impossible, but it requires, first of all, a different mindset. Is that no, <laughs> your existing customers, if you sit here and hold your breath, are not coming back. Um, you could hope they yeah. do, but you've got to assume that, you know, for example, the nature of work will change forever. Uh, I think there are some givens and there are some questionable uh, things that you either could bet on or not. I think, you know, probably a billion people have now been exposed to working remotely and a good number of sure, yeah. questioning. So help me understand that I, I commute 45 minutes to go to work, to do email, <laughs> to answer the phone and go on Zoom and then commute back home every day to do that. Help me understand why I have to do that five days a week. Right. And yeah. I think, you know, everybody in that company from the CIO to the facilities person is probably asking that uh, same question. Right. If you were small, and that's large companies, small businesses are also discovering just maybe for a matter of survival, that some things you thought can only do in person, everything from children's parties. You know, I have small businesses thinking I'm out of business when they discovered no parents of small kids still wanted entertainment and they were delivering it over Zoom. It's a question of whether that will continue or not or which part will just go back to the status quo. And uh, and will you be able to take advantage of that? So one of the questions that I think a lot of business owners and uh, employees may have at this point is, how do you keep yourself from overcorrecting for a change? So the world looks very different right now because we are in the midst of a crisis. How do you determine which of those changes are going to stick around, like to the point you just made around remote work, and which ones are going to be more ephemeral? 
Well, you, you know, that's a great question, Megan, about which changes are going to stick around and which are ephemeral. You know, the, it goes all the way back to, to some fundamental assumptions is, you know, if, if these changes are permanent, uh, what's your cash flow, burn rate, and, and runway look like? Yeah. For example, we still are locked down in December. Am I still in business? Yeah. And if we're going to recover by December, what's the upside? The good news or bad news is your guess is going to be as good as anybody else's. <laughs> but there are now trends we could see a state-by-state reopening, watching early consumers return. Are they all going to pack into restaurants or airplanes in Disneyland? Or are people going to react differently? And is this kind of change in behavior going to be uniform or is it going to differ for the first time ever by both geography, East Coast, you know, New York, Boston, et cetera, versus yeah. Midwest? And is it also going to be demographically different? People over 65 being a lot more hesitant to go into dense areas than people under 30. Maybe behaviors mm-hmm. will kind of be a little different than they were before. And again, that can create either unexpected bad uh, predictions or interesting opportunities for uh, businesses, both existing and new. One of the things that you've written um, is that the ripple effects of businesses closing for this lockdown, they're not going to be obvious at first. You know, we see all of the immediacy of the impact, but there will be sort of a long tail, as you're alluding to, um, and that that long tail, we just won't know for quite some time. Do you find this scary at all? Um, you know, being a an entrepreneur where my job was was to make other people's life scary, I, I, I find it a, a wonderful opportunity. <laughs> it, it, you know, if you're an existing business, you should be scared. Um, yeah. Scared is, you know, should probably be the first 30 minutes. And then you need to kind of go, okay, let's take a deep breath and see if we could make it into an opportunity. Um, I, I, for example, if I'm, I was managing a sales organization, I'd now break someone's legs if they did a first sales call in person. You know, yeah. <laughs> you, we found that um, at least for a complex sale, a first intro sales call is just fine over Zoom. Right. Well, you'll trade off some of that intensity of a first meeting in person. You could probably do 50% more calls by not having to get in your car or physically travel. So, for example, the nature of, of sales might change. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just curious. What are you watching right now as businesses start to reopen? I think trying to understand of how much of the change will be permanent, how much will be um, demographically and geographically surprising. Hmm. Will people behave uniformly or will they behave differently? And also um, what I'm watching is what niches are now open, given that some of the massive losses some of the existing companies have faced and and are still laying off people. Um, are there new ways to do business in transportation and hospitality and travel and food mm-hmm. services, you know, communal kitchens, et cetera? Will delivery uh, permanently stick or will we go back to our old ways? Or will fast casual be kind of the new thing that springs up in, in something intermediate? Uh, so I'm looking at all those trends. Um, yeah. That there's a whole parallel universe of life sciences that are also booming here. And by life sciences, I mean therapeutics, diagnostics, medical devices, and and digital health, which kind of bridges the the tech and life sciences world. Those companies and and, uh, spaces are receiving huge amounts of venture capital and funding, you know, besides the race for a vaccine. We've opened up again new niches in in multiple areas there. 
that yeah. are equally uh, interesting and exciting. I think that's I think that's really interesting and and an angle I haven't heard that much yet, which is that there's real power in the in the nuance of this and in in finding the niches that are going to behave differently and sort of leaning into that as a competitive advantage where you can. I guess my question springing off of that is any advice that you would have for companies in in finding that advantage and uh, leaning into that maybe ahead of their peers? Yeah, yeah. How do you look for advantages in the in the recovery and, and in the change world? And I guess the first piece of advice um, I would give, which is I don't normally do, is that typically in the U.S., you know, one size did fit all for most businesses and regions and people and demographics. Um, that's not true here, I don't think. Yeah. And so the first thing I would be I would be asking if I was an entrepreneur is there something everybody's missing about the consumer behavior or business behavior that may not be the same as before? Not just, you know, we're going to do things differently, but we might be doing things differently by region, by age, by something else. Yeah. The other is there's, as I said, hundreds of millions of people have now been exposed to a a different model of working and entertainment and education. Think about That's it. Gonna you know, change, online yeah. education, excuse me, sucks. <laughs> so <laughs> if, if you're a developer, the first thing you're probably saying is, well, I could do a lot better than this. There's a thousand startups right there. It's a problem to be solved. If you've been using any mm -hmm. video conferencing and you're in, in business, you understand why video conferencing really kind of lacks that subtlety of being able to pick up body language and facial cues and all the other things we do pick up in a face-to-face -face meeting. But we, companies already have facial recognition and, and emotion detection apps, but they've never been integrated into a business video conferencing tool. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Just imagine a whole next generation of tools, maybe not for consumers, but gee, here's the $1,000 add-on per seat for I yeah. can tell you whether your customer is you know, leaning forward or not regardless of what their words are saying, because we could do some sentiment and analysis in real time. And you could actually have a stream on the side of your screen going, no, 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 they didn't really buy your last slide or no, you just lost their interest. Wow. Yeah. What a strange future we're headed towards. Yeah. But but just imagine that, you know, and, and also the not just facial and, and video analysis, but also uh, uh, we've gotten pretty good with voice analysis as well. Right. You know, that was kind of science fiction. And yeah, that's nice to have pre-pandemic. But now, again, as I said, everybody had to use some kind of video tool if they were in sales or in marketing. People would be, I think, more amenable to that. This is the, the time for the best and the brightest and the creative to kind of seize the moment and seize the day. I think that's such a good point. And, uh, you know, we are sort of exiting phase one of this and entering phase two. And phase one was really all about short-term survival, you know, patching the holes in your boat. What does phase two need to look like for these businesses so that they can, you know, once stabilized, start to grow again? Well, I think the first thing is, uh, you know, before you start thinking about hiring or spending or anything is testing your new business model or testing your existing business models. It's still valid. Right. You know, first thing to check is how are your customers doing? Well, it depends on, yeah. on whether people are buying from them or whether they now are recovering, but they have different social distancing rules. Or it might be that your product or service, which was important, is no longer in the top three or five that they're going to be buying this year. So they still might be in business, but priorities of where you are no longer fit. Yeah. So not understanding that, this is where I go back to 
lean methodology would say, hey, let's run some quick experiments and test some key hypotheses. And some of those key hypotheses are, are our customers still there? Yes, no. Yeah. You know, are they spending the same way they were spending before? Yes, no. That not only is true for large companies, but if you're a startup, venture capital in some areas have been completely shut down. Yeah. Okay, we'll get back to you. Well, what does that mean? Or, or if you were a funded startup and you were expecting a next series of investment and your investor said, we're right behind you and you go, okay, yeah, where's yeah. the check? Well, we'll get back to you. This means we're not right behind you. Because again, investors are also doing their own lifeboat strategy. Exactly. And more importantly, some of the larger VC funds uh, had to had support their most important investments, which were their later stage companies, a good number of which the bottom dropped out of their customer base. Yeah. Airbnb, Bird, and others, you know, customers went to almost zero. So now all of a sudden, I had this huge valuable asset that needs a ton of capital which I may no longer have for early earlier stage investments. The point yeah. is for for new startups that are not cash flow positive and, and require additional investment for e- either to stay in business or for growth, those rules that existed pre-March 1st are out of the window. And as a as a founder and CEO, you need to understand what the rules are, not what they're saying the rules are, but what the real rules are. Right. And by the way, just to, to double down a bit on that, if you're a, a founding CEO dealing with investors, the simple test is how many checks have you written in the last 30 days? That's what I would be asking investors. If the answer yeah. is none or one, you know, like, oops. There's something behind that for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, so one of the things that you've written a lot about that that I've always found really interesting is this idea that innovation in startups is easier, but as you get more established as a company, as you grow, it gets harder and harder to innovate because you have these pre-existing playbooks. You've got this sort of history of uh, what your company has done before. But right now, in many ways, every company has to act like a startup in its ability to make drastic change and to pivot very quickly. Do you have any advice for more established companies finding themselves in a position of needing to make drastic change to begin to shake off the past and um, and dive into that? You know, smart CEOs might want to consider consciously and, are, and purposefully tapping into those innovators and entrepreneurs that they actually do have in their companies by uh, calling them to arms. Uh, that is letting people know that this is going to be their finest hour and they are needed, you know, not as running these heroic activities, but actually to come in and be pitching the C-level suite for what it is the company could be doing next. And, and I think that that would be a really interesting activity for CEOs and C-level execs is to realize inside your company, you probably have more entrepreneurial talent than startups in, in your industry. You just in the past particularly didn't need them or or didn't know what to do with them. Even just the life that that would breathe into a employee base, I think would be meaningful in and of its own right. Well, I think it would uh, uh, perhaps bring out what we've been talking about theory in the last 20 years, this notion of an ambidextrous organization. That is organizations that not only have processes for execution, which is at their core, but also build parallel processes for innovation that creates uh, new businesses and enhances existing ones. I think if, um, if uh, smart CEOs are going to figure out how to put together these groups and, and, and you'll get the classic, you know, 
Nine, nine out of 10 of the ideas will be insane, but one or two of them will A, save your company and, and steer you in a direction that uh, might actually make you stronger and, and larger in the end. Yeah. Is this existential? In other words, can those businesses that hesitate, that don't take action, can they still survive coming out of this? Is that even an option anymore? Well, uh, you know, being being lucky is not something you actually bet on, but uh, <laughs> it might be that, you know, paralysis in some cases might have been the right choice. Um, you know, I, I tend to think that uh, luck comes to the prepared. Is there anything else that, that I'm missing that, um, that you've been thinking about you think is important for businesses to consider right now? Well, this actually is for the employees of the businesses. Um, you know... Um, Every crisis, whether it's personal or business, is often a time for reflection about, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Mm. You know, it's kind of hard to think about it, but, you know, our careers, all of us, only have about 15,000 days, and that's including the weekends. And and you might want to think, you know, I've been telling all my students and, and graduates, is, is this career in social media or wherever you are, the right career that you want to have looked back on in 20 years because you're not going to have much more time. You don't want to say coulda, shoulda, woulda. You know, would you rather have been working in therapeutics or medical devices or then making the next fart app? And I'm, I'm not suggesting that entertainment isn't great and, and B2B commerce isn't essential, but, but it's a job. Right. And now is the time to think about what value do you want to add are you going to look back and say that was a valuable life that you led and this job was a piece in doing that? Or was it just a job and you never actually spent much time reflecting and it was an unexamined life? You know, I could look back at my own career and, and I could tell you I don't have any regrets about what I did because I, I did things not only that I wanted to do, but actually things that made a difference for not just my life, for, but for other people's. Yeah. Well, Steve, you're leaving us with a lot to think about. I thank you so much for the time. You are welcome back anytime to The Gross Show. I've always enjoyed the conversations. Well, thank you. I hope this was helpful. Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown. Music came from Tyler Litwin and Synchronize. If you're a fan of the show or think you might know someone who could really use a little more gross show in their life, tell someone about us. It's wild, I know, but it's actually the best way to support this show. No donations, no links to click, a subscribe doesn't hurt, but mentioning the gross show to a colleague or friend would really mean a lot to me. Which reminds me, have I told you lately that you're my favorite? As always, I'm Megan Keeney Anderson and stay safe out there.